Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk, a series entitled God and the Problem with Evil. So let's turn to Habakkuk as we hear a message entitled, The Man Who Saw Suffering. I've been told that there's a Chinese proverb which is often interpreted as a curse. It says, may you live in interesting times. You know, the problem with interesting times is that you don't want to live in interesting times. Interesting times are times of great upheaval and conflict and of wars and revolutions and plagues and things that threaten our undoing. If you wondered what I would be speaking about when I gave the title of my address today, the title, The Man Who Saw Suffering, you might be excused if you thought I was speaking about Job. But I might just as easily have been speaking about Joseph or Moses or David or, for that matter, I might just as easily have been speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these people saw interesting times, and for that matter, Jesus promised interesting times to all his followers. But for our study, I have begun a new series in this little book in the Bible called Habakkuk. I have begun by making the point that the theme of Habakkuk is a theme of complaint. Oh God, why do you allow suffering? And I've also made the point that the God of the Bible is not apologizing for suffering. And if that's shocking news, at least it is for some of us. If that's true, how can God be loving? And it's this theme that we're going to address today as we get into this valuable little book called Habakkuk. But before we dive right in, let's step back for a moment. Up till now in our study, I've said that this book is an invitation to ask the big questions about life, about God, and about the experiences of suffering. But we need to step back and answer this question. Just who was this man, Habakkuk, who invites us into these deep and complex questions? See, there's very little said about the man himself. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 reads, the oracles that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And that's all we are told about him. We don't find his name mentioned again in the entire Bible. We don't know who his parents were. He doesn't even mention the king under which he served. Even his name is a bit of an enigma. Does it mean to embrace? Well, we aren't sure. There is some speculation as to what his name means because the meaning of names was very important in those days. But even here, we are left with almost no information at all. But all sorts of Bible students have examined the book to find any clues that we might find that tells us something about this man. Because of the call to worship in the third chapter, and because of the nature of his inquiry of God, many have felt that this was indeed a temple prophet. Let me explain. During the time of David, David saw the need for just such kind of people. 1 Chronicles 25 verse 1 says, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres and harps and with cymbals. So this function, which seems to have been an enduring office in Israel, seems comparable to the very end of the book. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 19b, which is the very last line of the book. And it simply says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, you'd think from that little line that it was expected that a part of this little book was to be sung as an act of worship. And if you read chapter 3 carefully, that seems very likely. So since it seems likely that what Habakkuk wrote was to be sung in the temple, 
And since the book of Habakkuk is one of the books of Israel's prophets, it seems likely that he belonged to an order of men in the temple that had its roots and origins back from the time of David. Now, one of the functions of these temple prophets was to give responses to people who had come to the temple to inquire of God. Think about it. In our day, all manner of people, when studying the Bible, are going to seek out a good Bible teacher, maybe a knowledgeable pastor or someone else, and try to come to terms with some of the questions that they might have. And if I'm right about Habakkuk, that seems to have been his function. After questions were asked of a temple prophet, the prophet would then go and approach God and await for an answer. See, a good example of that would have been the prophet Jeremiah. After Jerusalem had been destroyed, there's a record of the few remaining people left in the land, and they approached Jeremiah, and they asked him if they should go to Egypt. You know, in that case, Jeremiah inquires of the Lord. He hears from God, and he says, no, don't go. Of course, the people go anyway. And of course, not all the prophets were temple prophets. So, for instance, listen to how Amos identifies himself, and that's found in Amos 7, 14 and 15. It says, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And so to the most part, prophets functioned outside of the mainstream. They didn't belong to the temple, and often what they said was very controversial. See, they called for kings and princes and for priests and for common people all to repent. They frequently warned that if repentance was not forthcoming, God's anger would then come upon Israel. And so it was important for prophets to be outside of the official temple service. That's because the establishment would not be able to tame them. So their passion for holiness or for righteousness and their their passion to root out idolatry could not be tamed. I mean, you couldn't fire them because no one had hired them. But it was also important to have prophets inside of the temple because unless you did, you'd break the connection between the word of God and the worship of God. And that is most likely who Habakkuk was, faithful to God and yet functioning within the structure. Now, if I'm right about that, then Habakkuk would likely have heard hundreds and hundreds of people come to the temple and ask questions about God. But at some time in his life, I mean, perhaps as a result of the big questions that people had, or perhaps as a result of his own big questions, the book that bears his name describes him not asking God the questions that someone else had asked him, but rather he comes on his own to inquire of God for his own behalf. He, the prophet, has his own questions. Oh God, he says, how long will you allow evil to go on? We need to see Habakkuk stationing himself on one of the watch posts that surround the city, determined not to move from his place until God had answered him. So in a real way, does it not seem that Habakkuk has stationed himself there also for us? Are we all awaiting the same answer? How long can evil be allowed to go on? So in a real way, view Habakkuk as one who inquires of God on your behalf. And as you read this little book that's written by him, hear his answer. Now, there's still more preliminary work that we must do before we begin to read. Is there something about the times in which he lived in which the question of suffering was so important? I mean, remember the Chinese saying about living in interesting times? Was Habakkuk living in interesting times? 
what can we know about the time in which he lived? Remember, I said that Habakkuk does not mention who's king, when he writes, and so we're missing some vital pieces of information. But in spite of that, we can still very closely estimate the time of his writing. I'm reading Habakkuk 1 verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And so it is clear that when Habakkuk was writing, God was busy raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonian Empire. So what do we know about that time in history? Well, we know that before the Babylonians, the entire Middle East was dominated by the Assyrian Empire. It was an empire that had its capital in Nineveh. It was an ancient city along the Tigris River in what is today northern Iraq. This very powerful empire had destroyed many nations and was known for deporting entire populations and resettling their land with other people and thus effectively bringing nations to an end. So in order to survive, all nations under their domination would pay a very expensive tribute to Assyria. Now, if you don't know what a tribute is, you know, think of it as an ancient protection racket. I remember a number of years ago when my wife and I visited Sao Paulo, Brazil, we were there for a missions trip, and we soon learned that when you parked your car, someone would come to you and take money from you to protect your car from being vandalized. So I remember asking, well, who's going to vandalize the car? And the answer was, well, the guy you just paid. You've just paid him to protect you from him. And that is what the Assyrians did. Pay them and they will protect you from being invaded by a foreign power. So who will invade you? Well, the answer is the Assyrians will. So before Habakkuk's time, it was already a very interesting time. There'd already been so much suffering, but things were about to go from bad to very much worse. That's why Habakkuk stations himself on the watch post and says to God, why? And how long will you allow this to go on? The world we live in is a fallen one. Bad things are happening all around us, but why? How could a God who loves us allow evil to exist in the world? Beginning this week, I invite you to join in and listen as Dr. Neufeld begins his three-week series called God and the Problem of Evil. It's become popular for people to say that they're angry at God, but have we stopped to think how God feels about us? What happens when you shake your fist at God when life gets hard? When we are in seasons of despair, what should our response be to our Creator? God will always act in a way that's consistent with His character, not with the mood of the time. Join us every day for more Bible teaching you can trust from Back to the Bible Canada. And if you'd like to support the ministry or receive some information about all of the free resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. noted the time directly prior to Habakkuk. The Assyrian Empire had humbled one nation after another, and the groans of suffering was rising from the earth. And in Judah, things were even more intense. From 695 to 642 BC, for a period of over 50 years, the Jewish king Manasseh ruled in Jerusalem. 
In order to survive during those times, well, he installed Assyrian cult objects right in the temple in Jerusalem, and they were worshipped along with the Lord. And during those long years, more than 50, Baal worship flourished, and children were burned in fire to the pagan god Moloch. Horses for battle were dedicated to the sun god, and the temple was allowed to fall into ruin, and no one cared for it. It was, it was falling apart, and so it, it lost all sense of splendor. Most Jews no longer believed in the God of Israel. And for the faithful, this was almost enough to get one to believe that God simply didn't care for his own glory. But Manasseh died after more than 50 years as a king. How long, O Lord? Why did you allow him, the most evil king, to reign for so long? But a new king, Josiah, comes to the throne. The year is 640 BC. He's everything that Manasseh was not. He's righteous, he's God-fearing, and he's courageous. And he leads Israel into a national revival. He burns down pagan altars and child sacrifice ends. And he restores the temple and the, the law of God is rediscovered. And all of Israel is led to repentance. It seems like God is finally answering and hearing the prayers of, of his faithful people. And then the unthinkable happens. The Assyrian Empire seems to be foundering. A new power is on the rise. It's Babylon. A powerful Babylonian prince named Nabopolassar leads a successful revolt against Assyria and gains complete independence from Assyria. Soon war between Assyria and Babylonia is on the horizon, and the Egyptians, nervous about Babylon, decide to send an army to help the Assyrians. The Egyptian king is Pharaoh Necho, and, and years ago when Kathy and I were in Egypt, we toured a palace that he had built along the Nile. Necho decides to march his army up from Egypt right through Israel, and Josiah sees this and thinks, Assyria is the worst thing that's ever happened to the Jews. I will march out my army and prevent Pharaoh Necho from helping the Assyrians. And so a battle ensues in northern Israel, and amazingly, unbelievably, righteous and godly King Josiah is killed on the battlefield. See, what's fascinating for Christians is the place where Josiah was killed was on the plains of Megiddo, or as it's now known, the Valley of Armageddon. It was there that the hope of Israel died. It was there that the prophet Jeremiah composed laments. And it was in this same geography yet to come in the future, when the hopes of all humanity will also die. This event during that time was crushing and almost inexplicable. Pharaoh Necho, after having killed righteous King Josiah, then, then puts a puppet on the throne of Jerusalem, a man named Jehoiakim, and through him reverses all the revivals of Josiah. The movement back to God now comes to a crashing halt. All the ugliness of the old paganism is back with a vengeance. All that's holy is again being defiled. So we're pretty sure Habakkuk lived to see the death of Josiah and was now living under the pagan rule of Jehoiakim. And it is with this background that the book of Habakkuk begins. I mean, listen to Habakkuk 1 verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Wow! Think of how poignant that is. You know, we've talked about the times in which Habakkuk asks his questions of the mysteries of God, and we know they were indeed times when evil seems to triumph. I'm reminded that we must never say God has nothing to do with this. In fact, as we read through the Bible, and especially through the Old Testament prophets, we're going to find exactly the opposite is true. God has everything in the world to do with this. Listen to what the prophets before Habakkuk said. 
About a hundred years before Habakkuk, the prophet Isaiah spoke eloquently of God's command over the happenings of all the nations. In Isaiah 40, verse 17, he declares, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, God's power and rule over kingdoms and nations is overwhelming. Psalm 108, 8 and 9 says, Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Or Isaiah 5:26 shows exactly how God treats the nations. It says, he will raise a signal for nations afar off and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. In other words, the nations do exactly as God has determined. They might not know it, but they all obey his command. This becomes especially true in the end of the history of the world. Joel chapter 3, verse 2 has God speaking, and it says, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Indeed, later on, Joel states in chapter 3, verse 12, Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. God whistles for the nations, and they come. The nations cannot rebel against God's will for them. He has appointed them for a day of judgment, and in the meantime, they play out the exact role he predestines for them. In fact, speaking directly to the empire of Assyria, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 37, 26, and 27, and hear these words. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. Yes, Amos was right. When disaster comes to a city, God has done it. So as we read through Habakkuk and realize his place in history and the things that the prophets had already spoken, including the coming of the kingdoms of Babylon, we're confronted with many things. We know this is a book about the really big questions. We know that the book is written by a man whose job it was to inquire of God. We know of the times in which he lived, and we will learn as we study this book that there are certain answers Habakkuk already knows, and we should know those things before we study. The first answer the prophet knows is that God is sovereign. Some years ago, a book which was quite popular was entitled God at War. The argument in this book is that God is now at war with Satan, a point that we must all agree on. But, says the author, right now, as war is going on, there are all sorts of unintended consequences in the battle, which include things like cancer and child-infant death syndrome and poverty and human warfare and the like. And the author then goes on to say that God is genuinely concerned about all of that, but he can't do anything about it. He states that God will win the battle eventually, but he can't end it now. It will take time and we're going to have to be patient. See how different that is from the God of the Bible, who whistles for the nations and they come, who uses nations to bring other nations to ruin. Listen to Habakkuk 1 verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's at the beginning, before we even begin to read this book and bring our big, big questions into it, we'll have to decide whether we believe that God is sovereign or not. 
You see, if you believe that God has nothing to do with the great disasters in our world, then there is no mystery here for you. But let's say you already know the God of the Bible, and you read books like Habakkuk with fear and trembling and ask, is God doing these things that Habakkuk speaks about? This is where the reality of history is so important. We know that God used these big events to end idolatry in Israel and to eventually bring his son into the world. Without those events, we would never have known salvation. And so in the light of history, we can understand. But the day it was happening, it was anything but clear. But what of today? You know, as we read through this book, I want to invite you deeply into the mystery of the sovereignty and of the love of God. I want you to see God not as you imagine him to be, but God as he actually is. Not the God of popular culture, but the God who has revealed himself in history and in the word. And if you dare to see God as he is, both loving and sovereign, it may just be that by the time we end this book, which deals with the question of suffering, that we may just find ourselves where Habakkuk did at the end of this book, in worship of the one true God. So let me invite you into an adventure, the adventure of knowing God and into one of the deep mysteries of our God. John, it's obvious that Habakkuk wasn't born into a good time and and probably has all kinds of questions in respect to that. But we hear those questions today, like, uh, why was I born into poverty? Or or why was I born this this ill? Or why was I born into this family or this place? Uh, How do we give people answers to those questions? Yeah, I I think um, we can't answer every question that's ever asked. But there is something about why questions that are significant because the way in which we ask them is, I think, more significant than the why question itself. If the why question is asked with the clenched fist, there will be no answer that will ever be sufficient because it's anger that's driving the questions and it's anger that pervades the life. But if the why question is one that says, God, show me what you have for me in this time, I mean, it seems overwhelming to me how many persecuted Christians who live in persecuted countries will ask the why question simply by saying, Lord, show me what you have for me at this time. And I think that's the productive way to ask the question. So we need to ask it with a yielded heart to God. Thanks, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's Word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? 
With your consistent support as a monthly partner or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or In Doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.